Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel. Tonight, I'm joined by PR consultant Alex Dean, author and commentator Joanna Williams, and former editor of The Labourist, Peter Edwards. And you know the drill on Jubes and Kerr by now. It's not just about us here. It's about you at home as well and your thoughts. What's on your mind tonight? What do you make of everything that's going on? And as I touched on earlier on, how are you feeling right now? It is... Not much positive. I mean, I, I do want to try and bring you positivity, but there doesn't seem to be much of it about right now. Get in touch with me on email. Let me know what, what's going through your mind. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Uh, I'm sure you all know as well by now that we're on YouTube. You can subscribe over there if you haven't already. We're on the radio, DAB+. We're all over all the different social media channels. Uh, so if you're not across them, get on them. It's very interesting. You've got all the, the best bits and a lot more. But shall we just get straight into, uh, which is, of course, the top news story, the news agenda, of course, understandably dominated by the war in Ukraine right now, as we've just been hearing uh, in the news headlines. Let's get straight into that, shall we, Alex Dean? What's your kind of response to all of this? Watching your bulletin, I thought about leadership in two different senses. The first was Zelensky, who has emerged as a 21st century hero, and uh, I thought... It continues to amaze uh, many, myself included. The other kind of leadership is a bad kind of leadership, which was hinted at with the potential involvement more directly of Belarus in this conflict. Mm. Lukashenko is Europe's last dictator. Not just called that by others, he's called himself that. He is not recognised as the president of Belarus by the United Kingdom, by the United States or by the European Union since he stole the election in 2020. That was an opportunity for Belarus to return to the community of nations. Instead, the dilemma we face now is if we sanction them because of their behaviour, just like we've, we've sanctioned Russia, we will drive them very quickly into the arms of the Russians. And it, within a relatively short period of time, we had the opportunity for them to rejoin the community of nations. Instead, it looks like they're going to be straight back into the arms of Moscow. Yeah, and don't forget, by the way, some of us uh, will recall the imagery uh, in November, I think it was, about the whole refugee situation that Belarus played a part in trying to orchestrate. Yeah, and it is. I think you're quite right. It is terrifying because it's two schools of thoughts almost for me. No sane-minded individual wants any innocent person to suffer. So for me, my heart watches these awful imageries and hears the stories, etc. My heart says, get involved, get involved, do as much as we can, stop it, stop it, stop it. Then my head teeters, and you might think it's cowardly, my head teeters and then thinks, actually, whoa there, we need to be incredibly careful because this is such a sensitive issue with people that don't seem to have that much mis restraint at the heart of it. And it's terrifying. Joanna? Well, I don't think that's cowardly at all, Michelle. I think you're absolutely right to take that approach. I mean, the fact is, 16 days into this conflict, it seems to be getting bleaker by the day. We've talked about Belarus coming in. We've talked about the Russian, uh, Putin trying to recruit Syrian soldiers as well, talk of chemical weapons, biological weapons. The whole thing just becomes more terrifying by the minute. But I do think we have to stay calm. We have to stay reasoned. We have to think with our heads rather than our hearts about this. But also, I think we need to be having half an eye on the end 
endgame. You know, it was from the very start, it was clear that this was not going to end well. But we need to be thinking about how we can bring about some kind of resolution in this situation or how a resolution might be possible. And it seems to me that one source might be that that some revolt comes from the Russian people themselves. And I think one thing that's absolutely beholden on us in the West is to make sure that we're not anti-Russian people, to make it clear that we are on the side of those Russian people who are very bravely, even now, taking to the streets to protest against Putin's regime. We need to make it clear that we're on their side. And I'm a little bit concerned that some of the rhetoric that's been coming out over the past few days, orchestras banning Tchaikovsky, for example, kind of makes out like we're against the Russian people and we're not. We're, we should be very, very clear that we're against Putin. Well, you mentioned ISIS, by the way. Uh, I was just checking my facts here and I, I was right. I thought I was. I had it in my head, but I just wanted to double check it because it sounds so bizarre. But um, ISIS, of course, the terror group that we'll be familiar with, said in an editorial that the war in their mind is divine punishment for the West. They're basically calling it crusaders against crusaders and say it hopes that it will destroy enemies of Islam. I mean, if you've got ISIS on your side, whoever you are, I think that alone is cause for uh, contemplation and reflection. Peter Edwards. Well, every day there are new horrors, whether it's the acts of Vladimir Putin or some of the comments you're alluding to from other foreign actors getting involved in Ukraine. And I actually hope that not just we stand with ordinary Russian folk but Britain's come together as well. It is a tough time. Of course, our hearts are primarily with the Ukrainian people who are going through unbearable suffering. I'm interested in what you said at the start as well, that Britain has to come together. We've had other debates over party political issues and they've been very acrimonious at the time. But we've, Britain and the West, we've got to stand together against an evil dictator in Russia. And in terms of the next steps, we've got sanctions. To, to my mind, they've come a bit too late, but clearly sanctioning of Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich means they are now picking up. I'm very interested that the debate is starting to come back to two areas because collectively it doesn't seem to be enough. It's the no-fly zone, but of course that means enforcement and possibly... Are you in favour of a no-fly zone? I'm incredibly nervous about it because as MPs of all parties have said, it, it, you have to enforce a no-fly mm. zone. It's not just a policy and enforcing it means potentially fighting in the skies with Russian jets. So we've got to treat that, well, I think, with absolute caution and sobriety. And I'm very interested in what Tobias Elwood said, a Tory MP for whom I've got a huge amount of respect. He served in the army. Um, this point about the role of NATO, are we being a bit cautious in terms of what NATO can do? And I think this, uh, I'm humble enough to admit, I don't know what the answer is, but I think Tobias Elwood is right. We've got to rethink what the role of NATO is because we've gone from thinking Vladimir Putin is clever and evil to thinking he is evil and out of control and not rational. Yeah, um, and Alex, one of the things that actually interested me, I mean, we talked briefly there about no-fly zones, and at the moment, most people are on the side of the fence of ruling that out. Nicola Sturgeon, uh, a couple of days ago, perhaps yesterday, every day seems to be rolling into one at the moment, but I know this week, certainly, she said uh, came out and said that we shouldn't necessarily be ruling out a no-fly zone. Uh, simultaneously, of course, people will be aware that the SNP position is obviously looking at should we have nuclear disarmament as well when you're focusing yeah. on things like Trident. You know, and I sit there and I just think this is all moving so, 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 so quickly. And whilst most people are saying no to a no-fly zone right now, I worry that that might change very quickly. And I worry that that really will be the start of something worse, worse than we've probably seen, certainly in my lifetime. Well, the point you've just made, I think, gives us an opportunity to have a bit of clarity, at least. 
There is no sense, I think, in most people's minds in pursuing an agenda of disarmament when the person you face is someone like Vladimir Putin holding a huge number of nuclear weapons. We should, certainly shouldn't unilaterally disarm ourselves when we face someone as wicked and evil as the But it was Ian Blackford Moscow. that was doubling down on those questions, totally. on that, that sense well, of that's trying why, to that's why I'm saying it's helpfully clarifying, because when he says that, he's so obviously wrong that it's useful for the rest of us. But my, my other point would be at this, putting NATO aircraft directly in the sky in conflict with um, Russian aircraft or in potential stated risk of conflict, that's the point about um, a, a no-fly zone, seems to me incredibly dangerous and a very significant escalation. At the moment, um, whilst, of course, um, what's happening in Ukraine is appalling, I'm against it. I'm a little bit concerned that a no-fly, all the discussion that we've had about a no-fly zone uh, has been a little bit of a, a wasted discussion, um, partly because it seems to me when you look at what's actually going on in the ground in Ukraine, the biggest threat to the Ukrainian people is actually not coming from the air. It seems to be coming from ground troops that have gone in from tanks and missiles and bombs that are being um, put, from air, uh, put from the ground rather from, from the air. <laughs> That's right, but remember, Zelensky also gave us two choices. He didn't just say, give me a, um, uh, a no-fly zone. He said, give me a no-fly zone or give me the, the material to take to the sky myself. And that is a real option mm. that we can pursue. But isn't that one of the same? Because don't forget, no, it's you had, not. But you had Poland, didn't you? Poland was offering to and provide should, some jets. Should, the US re should have rejected that. That. Well, that. They only rejected it because the Poles said they wanted to do it via Rammstein and via the Americans. And by the way, give us some F-16s in return for the MiGs that we're going to give uh, the Ukrainians. Well, at that point, it would plainly have been a NATO move. But countries are entitled to do things bilaterally. And if the uh, Poles decided to gift their MiGs, their old MiGs, on which the Ukrainian pilots are trained, to Ukraine and, and did it directly, rather than trying to do it via the Americans, that could work. And I don't see why that was the same as having NATO aircraft in the sky. Yeah, something that I do worry is getting slightly overlooked at the moment is uh, because everyone, I think most people in this scenario are trying to act with good intentions. Most people are horrified by what they're seeing. Yes. They're hurt and upset and saddened by what they're seeing and they want to do what they think is the right thing. But one of the things that concerns me is the potential for unintended consequences on some of the reactions. Um, you know, like we, you mentioned sanctions for a second ago, uh, Peter, and you were saying that you wish that they'd gone, you know, perhaps faster and sooner. And I kind of sit there and I, I think, you know, the unintended consequences of all of these things. You know, there's rumours that Putin was turning around uh, the other day and saying, obviously, the Western brands have kind of boycotted a lot of the uh, Russian markets. Putin was apparently coming out and saying that he was going to essentially nationalise some of the assets that those people have left over in those kind of Russian uh, economies, Russian cities. And I just think you've, we're going to be talking a bit later in this programme about the significant increases to cost of living that some of these things are going to have as well. And then there's the monumental unintended consequences of actually tipping us into what could become a World War Three. Do you think people are considering some of the consequences to some of the suggestions that they're making? Well, on World War Three, clearly, that's the thought that's gone through all our minds. I think everyone is considering that rightly because the stakes are so high when you're up against a nuclear power. The economic question uh, I look at a bit differently because in a war, and Britain is perhaps involved in a war, we're an actor in a war, but clearly without boots on the ground and there's no public or government appetite for boots on the ground. But in a war, there are no good outcomes. And at that stage we're now, so on economic sanctions, clearly I want all British businesses to do well and I want them to expand overseas. But what I would say, those companies that have been opening stores uh, after the annexation of Crimea, uh, 
after the Salisbury poisoning, so those two in 2014 and 2016 respectively, are, those British companies have been running stores in Moscow over the last eight years. They've been going into a risk knowingly about everything that Vladimir Putin does, whether that's around human rights, around violence in his country abroad, around democracy and around free speech. Well, Sorry. No, well, I, I, I need to move on in a second to social media, but I'm about to make a point, and then I thought, actually, before I move on, I wouldn't mind your insight in this, because PR is your kind of bag. I am, and I understand that people will be critical of me saying this, because I've said this previously this week, and I got a lot of uh, abuse for saying it, but I look at Western brands pulling out of Moscow, and I don't massively respect it. And the reason that I don't massively respect it is because I'm not sure how sincere it is. Alex, because they're saying to us, look, because of what these guys have done to Ukraine, we're pulling out. But if that was your position as a, as a brand, that you were anti-conflict, anti-invasions, anti-whatever, there are so many bad things happening in the world, because this is not the only war happening globally sure. right now. So for me, I find it a little bit virtue signaling, a little bit hypocritical that they've chose this conflict and not the others. It's realistic, I think, that in the public mind, um, understandably in these circumstances, something becomes an order of magnitude more prevalent in what people are concerned about and, and afraid, afraid of, and you don't want to be associated with that in any way as a brand. And it may not, you, there may not be a clear, bright line in principle that you can draw in a distinction between this conflict and others, but in a matter of practice, you can't, the pressure on these brands is so high to come out. I and mean, even sometimes, by the way, when you, Joanna was talking about blameless Russians who've done nothing wrong. You know, brands that do things like supply baby formula and milk are being pressured to come out of Russia. I mean, that, things like that, you look at and you think to yourself, I'm not sure I approve of, uh, of that pressure, actually. But the pressure is simply so high that it's understandable they make these decisions. I agree with you, Michelle. I think there is an awful lot of virtue signalling going on here. Um, I spent this morning doing my online supermarket shop and I got to the checkout stage and it said, would you like to donate £3 to the crisis in Ukraine? Now, I've no objection to that, but it just struck me as a very bizarre thing when you think there's, as you say, there's wars going on in various different countries around the world. They've never asked me if I would like to um, donate £3 to the people in Yemen, for example. Um, and about these brands pulling out, as I was saying before about, you know, we need to show the Russian people that were on their side. My fear is that with all these Western companies, multinational companies withdrawing, it does very much seem as if the Russian people themselves are being targeted. I doubt Putin pops into his local McDonald's that often. You know, this is going to hit mm. Russian kids who can't see Disney films, Russian young people who like to go and hang out outside McDonald's. And I think the real danger of that is that it actually drives well. people more towards Putin and towards the Russian government rather than driving a wedge between them is ideal. I think you're spot on because people would, when I said it earlier on this week, people were responding saying, oh, Michelle, you don't know what you're talking about. It's all about putting pressure on the Rus uh, average Russian consumer so that they then turn against Putin. And I understand that concept, but I don't agree with it because I think that we don't operate in an ideal world and Russia is restricting so much of the information flow. When I say Russia, I mean the government is restricting so much of the information flow to its own people that I think that the people experiencing this uh, lack of product services and lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, they will be turned against the West because of that. So, as I say, unintended consequences. I want to just talk very briefly, though, move it on a little bit, because there are so many angles we could uh, cover on this conflict. But social media, um, you know, this is such a fast-moving kind of uh, situation. 
And it's an information war often as well, not just a militarily, uh, military one. And Meta, you might have seen this. Uh, you know, if you have, for example, over the last couple of years, move aside from the conflict, but if you dared to even post anything on social media that even vaguely questions, uh, for example, a vaccine, you will have had warnings slapped all over your uh, post quicker than a quick thing from Quickland. And there's been so much uh, censorship uh, in terms of what people could and couldn't say about COVID and misinformation and all the rest of it. So then what happened, what's been uh, discussed today, really caught my eye because Meta, uh, which is the company that owns both uh, Instagram and Facebook, has announced that it will now temporarily allow some violent speech in relation to the war in Ukraine. What this basically means is that comments or posts that call, for example, for the death of Vladimir Putin or his Russian soldiers won't be removed, which, of course, is a huge contrast to the rules that if people are posting the thoughts uh, about pretty much anything uh, that people might refer to as harmful, well, Russia, of course, responded to this and have called for the US to stop what they are calling the extremist activities of the social media giants. I've got to say, I mean, how do we, what do we feel about this? Alex, um, you know, I know that you were part of something called Big Brother Watch, which is often about censorship and things like that. Yeah. Is it right that um, a social media company can kind of say, right, you can't say hateful things, but on this one instance, I'm going to let you do it because I, I think well, you might be right. It does make it very clear, doesn't it, the level of control that is being wielded by these platforms as a whole. And, of course, there are many social media platforms. And I think the pressure for all of them has been that, on the one hand, they've long argued that they are not publishers. They are neutral hosts of material that you mm. choose to put up yourself. Platforms, yeah. Whilst at the same time having um, increasingly to take responsibility for the content that people put up, implying strongly that they are indeed publishers. Mm. Well, this is a, the biggest possible case in point, and I think their response actually is just doubly pragmatic. One, because the sheer number of posts calling for calling for the kinds of things you're talking about, calling for an end to Vladimir Putin's regime, bloodily if necessary, calling for the Russians to be beaten with force, you know, the sheer number of posts being said, by, understandably, by, by users of these platforms mean that they would alienate a huge amount of their customer base if they went in a different direction. But secondly, the backlash, if they said, you can't say Vladimir Putin rule should end and so forth. The backlash would be huge and with no disrespect meant to, to vaccine sceptics and so forth, it would be far, it would be, it would dwarf any example like that. So my point is that it's like the conversation we were having before. In principle, you might say, why is this different? In practice, they're just being pragmatic and giving way to something they had to do. Joanna? Hmm. Well, I read the story this morning and I didn't know whether to laugh or cry, in all honesty. It seems utterly bizarre that social media companies give us permission now to go around um, threatening to kill people, essentially. Uh, just, just seems crazy and I think it exposes the nakedly political way in which these companies now act and how we don't have free speech online but we have permitted speech we have things that they allow us to say and normally are allowing us not to say normally we're forbidden from saying even the mildest um, things on social media if the companies decide that they disagree with us you can go on twitter and even just saying that you think of a woman is a biological reality and you'll, you'll find yourself booted off the platform. But now we're allowed to go on and say that we think people in the Russian government should be killed. Um, I, I, you know, it really does expose how nakedly political this censorship is from the social media companies.
Yeah, according to Meta, what they're basically saying is, uh, as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have temporarily made uh, allowances for forms of political expression that would normally violate our rules, uh, things like violent speech such as death to the Russian invaders. We still uh, won't allow credible calls uh, for violence against Russian civilians. That's his um, a Meta spokesperson was saying. Uh, it goes on, uh, one of the articles I'm reading says, the calls for the leaders' deaths will be allowed unless they contain other targets or have two indicators of credibility, such as the location or the method. I have to say, I just find it all very peculiar because there might be people watching that, and as I'm saying, there are various different conflicts going on around the world. This is not the first war. This is not, um, you know, you've got genocides happening in various different places. And I just wonder, I, I'm repeating myself, it just seems peculiar that this particular conflict is, is getting such a reaction when many others do not. Peter Edwards. Well, Michelle, I think the quote you read out from Meta, the owner of Facebook, um, shows how they've tied themselves in knots, really. I think uh, Facebook's judgment is ill-advised and at risk of simplifying things. Facebook was set up as a way to stay in touch with your classmates. If mm. you have a business model that relies on calling for people to be killed, to me, that's not the right type of business. And if you're talking about any evil dictator in any country, personally, uh, while I'm neutral about their death, I'd much rather see them in jail being publicly held accountable for their crimes um, and we had the same discussion around Saddam, but, you know, if you're a dictator that kills people, you should be in jail, and I think... Sure, but realistically, this one outcome for this ending is someone, walk, brave Russian, walking up and shooting Vladimir Putin in the face. He's not going to be taken to The Hague. He's not going to be prosecuted. The Russians won't give him up. They won't prosecute him themselves. So it, it is a reasonable point for people to make on social media. But there are lots of other reasonable points that people might want to make on social media. Um, if I was the mother, for example, of a child who'd been caught up in the Manchester Arena bombing, I might want to post on social media that I think all Islamist terrorists should be killed. Uh, would Facebook allow me to do that? Why are they saying that I'm allowed to say that some people should be killed but not others? Like I say, it just exposes how political all of this censorship is and all, all of these rules are. Either they're for free speech or they're not, and clearly they're not, but, but why should these people who own these social media companies get to determine now who we can and can't legitimately hate. But doesn't it show, mm. sorry to dive in, doesn't it show how confused Facebook are? If, if somewhere in Facebook towers you have, uh, they've got vast numbers of staff and their internal debate about who, who Facebook judges that they'll allow to call for to be uh, killed, whether that's murder or extrajudicial killing. I mean, if, if Facebook's internal discussions about who, whose murder they approve of, I think they've kind of ended up in the wrong place. Well, there you go. I shall end it on that note. So I want to take a quick break. When I come back, I'll be reading out some of your reactions uh, to the situation we've just been discussing. I'll also be talking about COVID. I thought my days, slash I hoped my days, of talking about COVID were well behind me. But apparently there's a new variant in town. We'll be looking at that. And also the cost of living. Apparently some basic food products are going to be going up by about 50%. Let's not forget that's going to be off the back of lots of other price increases, fuel and all the rest of it. How are we going to get around all this? Are we? I'll speak to you in just a couple of, uh, couple of minutes. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubry. Just a quick reminder as to who my panellists tonight keeping me company. We've got PR consultant Alex Dean, author and commentator Joanna Williams and the former editor of Labelist Peter Edwards. Uh, lots of different opinions, shall I say, coming through uh, on the social media today. Um, you know, someone's just emailed in, Derek, 
saying he's furious um, that whilst Ukrainian people are being killed, all we care about is Russian people watching Disney films. Have to say, Derek, that's absolutely not. Uh, the sentiment that anyone here has. I think the point um, we were trying to make within the confines of that conversation there is about people that are not responsible in any way, shape or form for what their government's foreign policy is being uh, restricted like in the way that they are and whether or not that's effective, whether or not that's helpful, what the outcome of those things are going to be. That's the conversation uh, that we uh, was trying to have. Someone else uh, then has just got in touch saying I'm sick to death of all of you being massively anti-Russian. So, I mean, <laughs> as you can see, it is, um, you know, a very emotive topic that we're trying to discuss, trying to discuss it as uh, factually and sensitively as we can. Anyway, shall we move on and talk um, about COVID? As I said just before the break, I was really hoping that I was never going to have to talk about this topic again. But no, it's not meant to be, because you might have noticed uh, in some of the media today, uh, people getting a little bit excited, shall we say, concerned, uh, focusing on the new variant that they've discovered, going by the name of Deltacron. Do you see what they've done there? It's apparently a mix of Delta and Omicron strains, but despite its somewhat scary name, only 41 cases have been identified in Europe and the US. But what do you think to that? Um, should we be focusing on new variants? Is it time to move on? Uh, do we do this with any other ailment? Like every year, do we kind of find out that there's a new flu variant in town? Maybe we do, and I just don't pay attention to it. Joanna Williams? I think it's definitely time we moved on from this now. And I think the situation going on in Ukraine actually is a reminder to us that, that puts COVID into some kind of perspective, really. Um, you know, viruses do mutate. This is what viruses do. This is how they behave. It, COVID is always going to be with us from now on, it seems to me. And there's always going to be new variants cropping up. Um, although there was research out yesterday, just yesterday, uh, that pointed out that COVID is now less fatal than flu in the UK. That's thanks to the vaccine programme and also thanks to Omicron having whizzed through the population and given so many people natural immunity. Um, so I think it is more than time for us to move on and start focusing on other things in our life. Interesting thing just to add to that though, it's when you look at the data that's coming out of the UK right now, there is a bit of an increase in cases. It's actually Scotland that's leading the way, um, way above and beyond England and Wales in the real big uptake in cases in the UK. And yet Scotland was the last place to lift all its COVID restrictions and actually still has mask mandates in place in a lot of public settings. So it kind of calls into question the effectiveness of all these restrictions that we've been living under for the past two years. And again, I think is another reason why we've got to move on from this now. Well, um, a paper was released in The Lancet, I think it was uh, today actually, which was amongst other things you can look it up. Um, it's very publicly available, which was saying, Alex, that actually when you look at death rates and you make a comparison between uh, the death rates and restrictions, there's not a huge correlation between the two. So it seems that the virus is going to do what the virus is going to do. I hope that the days of restrictions, etc., are way, way, way behind us. Should I, we be focusing on these new variants like this? I hope that too. And no, I don't think we should be. And certainly not with the breathless excitement that has been shown by some commentators in the media. The not by me, definitely No, not. no, no. But you have the enthusiasm with which some people have said, oh, fantastic, what a new variant to talk about. Wonderful. Bring out the banners. 
get Sage band back together, you know, and that, that kind of excitement about it, wanting there to be a new uh, bit of, of coronavirus to get uh, excited about seems to me to be uh, both in bad taste and, and wrong because we're going to have to learn to live with this, as Joanna was saying, and absent some truly remarkable, different kind of thing that comes and affects humanity in a, in a different way to before, it seems to me we've just got to get used to it as we have had done with many other conditions in the past, like the flu. Peter Edwards, you agree? No, and I'm not aware of anyone who's excited about uh, a new variation of COVID. Clearly, it's all going to be with us. It's pretty grim, and I do recognise perhaps I'm a bit more in favour of restrictions than some of the other panellists. I do kind of remind people that restrictions are introduced to protect the NHS. There are different drivers. Public health, saving lives is important, but it's also to protect the NHS. And just to finish on one point, immunity, because that's something we all care about, our health and those of our loved ones. Immunity is not permanent. It's not like those childhood illnesses or childhood vaccinations where all being well, we're immune for life. COVID immunity wanes over time. Yeah, I mean, this whole kind of sentiment of protect the NHS, I mean, if I had a pound for every single time I'd have heard that, I'd be minted by now. But we didn't actually protect the NHS at all, did we? Uh, the COVID response sent the NHS, you know, the waiting list, for example. It's in a right predicament, isn't it? Uh, before I do move on from COVID, though, let me ask uh, Partygate, Boris Johnson. Is it now time to leave that? Well, in fact, actually, I'll pick up on you first, because you'll probably have a strong opinion on this. Boris Johnson, should we just forget about the whole Partygate thing now? Well, it's not my role, I'm a churchgoer, it's not my role to offer forgiveness for anyone. <laughs> I'll leave that to religious leaders, but I don't think we should forget what I would say. I think it's right that, that Westminster's focus on Ukraine, because that's a crisis of unprecedented proportions, and I hope we do keep things in perspective. But uh, God willing, the Ukraine, Ukraine situation will improve, and I think there's still inquiries pending on Partygate. Uh, and Boris Johnson and his staff are going to have to answer for some of their actions. Um, well, the Scottish uh, Tory leader, Douglas Ross, has withdrawn his letter of no confidence in Boris. I actually think that's the right thing to do. I think the last thing we need right now is a leadership distraction. Alex? I agree with that. But on the, and I, I wouldn't have, if I were in his shoes, I wouldn't have put the letter in in the first place. But on the other hand, and perhaps an unfashionable view as a Tory as I am, I think that if you've announced a, an investigation, then you should have it. And yes, it's the right thing to do to pause now, but people have to have trust in government and they also have to have trust in the rule of law. That's one of the reasons that we are appalled by what Russia is doing in Ukraine, that they are violating the basic norms of the rule of law and freedom under the law and fairness and all the things that we think go along with being part of a free society. And I think the Prime Minister is rightly applied to the job he's got uh, to do. But once we get through this Ukraine business, if inshallah, I hope that we do, um, we, we ought to have and conclude that inquiry because we said we would. And that's what responsible governments do. Well, I think when you've got pictures being beamed into your living room each morning of, let's say, bombed-out maternity hospitals in Ukraine, it is very difficult to get worked up about whether or not Boris Johnson had a slice of birthday cake or how many people exactly were in the room singing happy birthday to him. Suddenly, those things seem incredibly trivial. Um, but that doesn't mean to say I think we should just completely forget about what went on over the past couple of years. I mean, in fact, one consequence of what's going on at the moment is that it does allow leaders like Boris Johnson 
Biden, uh, Biden, who were being quite widely criticized for the way they'd handled the COVID pandemic to really uh, kind of bolster up their own moral legitimacy as leaders. And fair enough, you know, these other things pale into insignificance um, in comparison to what's going on in Russia. But at the same time, I don't think we should just let them get away completely with the way they essentially ruined people's lives for two years and, and you know, and, and ruined the country. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see when the uh, public inquiry into COVID actually begins, because I would like answers, actually, in terms of some of the restrictions. Um, I know, again, I talk about intentions. Intentions are always good. But where they're the right things, where they're uh, effective, and I hope that we have a transparent uh, public inquiry. Do you think we'll get one of those, Alex? I do. Um, I think it's inevitable we will have an inquiry into whether the UK has handled coronavirus in its entirety, uh, and it's right to have uh, that inquiry. It's going to take some time. You've got to hope that it doesn't go down uh, the route of some of the inquiries that we've had in this country in the past. You know, Hutton inquiry, which dragged on and on and on and on. People are going to want to kitchen sink it and try and investigate everything and throw every allegation in and rehear things that have already been through the public arena and been decided upon or not. But in the end, it's right that we have a public inquiry into coronavirus and the way we responded to it, and that it should be full spectrum. It should include the perspective, which many people hold, people who watch this channel, that the government went too far. It should include the perspective the government didn't go far enough, that did it things at the wrong time, did things at the right time, because one of the things we should take, take from this awful um, situation are these lessons for next time, because this isn't the last time we're going to face a, a terrible medical condition, and let's hope at least we can learn some lessons from it. Well, Philip's emailed about COVID and said, yes, Michelle, it's absolutely time to move on. We either need to live with or die from COVID. Take all sensible precautions, he says, but it is time to get on with living. And then he puts in brackets or dying. Ooh. Um, OK, well, there you go. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about the cost of living crisis. Uh, and, you know, it really is set to get a lot worse. What are we going to do about this? I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubri. Just a quick reminder as to who my panellists tonight. We've got PR consultant Alex Dean, author and commentator Joanna Williams and former editor of The Labourlist Peter Edwards. You guys are being, getting in touch. Uh, Ellie has just emailed in saying, Michelle, I wouldn't worry about Deltacron because with energy prices being so high, pretty much uh, soon everyone will be dying of pneumonia anyway. Oh, that's a cheery thought. <laughs> However, though, Ellie, it does provide me with a nice segue to my next segment, which is all about, actually, the cost of living. And we know, don't we, already, that energy bills are on the rise and could increase to about three grand a year for some people. But today we've been warned about massive increases to the cost of food as well. Uh, farmers and experts predict that the soaring cost of wheat and our reliance on it from Russia and Ukraine could see basic food items in the UK increase, as I said, by as much as 50%. They reckon that the price of pasta will double, the cost of a loaf of bread will increase by 20%. Hmm. So what do we do about this? It's all well and good talking about it. It's all well and good sitting here and pontificating um, about how bad it has the potential to get. Um, that's very depressing, isn't it? So what are we going to do about it? Uh, let's start with you, Peter Edwards. What is the, some of the solutions to this? Let's try and fix it. Well, I'd say, before we get on solutions, there is a cost of living crisis, and it's right the government has focused on Ukraine the last few weeks because of the horrific scenes there. But this is a crisis uh, economically in Britain that's been a long time in the making uh, since 2010. 
the government could have done a lot more. And you, you're going to challenge me, uh, what would Labour do about it? So, so I'll give you a, a couple of examples. Labour um, said it would levy a windfall tax on energy companies. We know there's some energy companies that have done very well in recent years. And, of course, we've got Richie Sunak's tax rise uh, just around the corner. Labour said they wouldn't proceed with that. So no national insurance tax hike. Uh, Joanna Williams? So I've got three solutions. You've got three, pla got three, three plans, sure. I would like to suggest. I think we need to cut taxes and environmental levies. When you think of the cost that we pay for our fuel, both petrol and domestic gas and heating, you know, about half of all of that is a mixture of VAT and environmental levies. I think it's time to completely do away with those environmental levies. Second solution, I think people need pay rises. You know, back in the 1970s and 1980s, when inflation rose, workers got together, went on strike and demanded pay rises. And I actually think I'd much rather give people a pay rise than start implementing windfall taxes on companies. I think that's a much fairer way to do it. And the third solution is we actually need to produce more. We need to get fracking. We need to get North Sea gas. You know, we need to grow more of our, our own grain and crops in this country. We're in this bizarre situation where huge swathes of land across the southeast of England are given over to solar panels. You know, why don't we engage in fracking instead, get gas out that we're sitting upon and use that land for growing crops and then you solve um, by producing more your lower prices in the long term. Well, reality bites, right? President Biden said to the fracking industry in the United States, I demand you do whatever it takes to keep oil prices down. I mean, this is not the discussion that the environmentalists thought they were going to be having with President Biden, but sometimes reality take its, takes its effect. I wanted to restrict my, my other remarks to, to one thing, which is about, I thought what Joe said about national insurance, uh, Labour outflanking the Tories as tax cutters, I, I rather liked. And sometimes when your um, political opponents do something that's right, the right thing to do is to accept and adopt it. I think that the right thing to do is not to proceed uh, with the national insurance uh, rise, mm. not least because national insurance is a fraud on the public. National insurance contributions from employers is just a tax on jobs yeah. and national insurance on employees is just another tax we've told people for two generations that they are being taxed in order to pay into a little pot that's for them for their retirement and that's not true it isn't hypothecated it doesn't belong to you it doesn't get attached to your name and get paid to you at the end it's money that goes into the system to prop up from taxpayers today the pensions that we pay to those who are taxpayers in the past you might say that's a good thing but you should definitely at least be honest about it and then to take that same system and say, this is how we're going to plug gaps in the NHS, is, to me, the wrong approach on tax. Well, one of my viewers has just got in contact, and I have to say, the, the emails pile in, so I see something, it catches my eye, and then it gets bumped down the list because you're all kind of writing in, so I, I don't recall your name, but you wrote in and you said, um, what about what we can do as individuals? And he was talking about... Um, People, oh, there you go, it's John. John, you're saying about what, what we can do. What about turning the heating down, wearing an extra jumper, switching off things that you don't, uh, when you're not using them, eat less food, don't waste food. I mean, I've got to say, John, you've got, some, you've got quite a lot in, in there, a lot of suggestions. And I guess the point that John's trying to make is, as a society, have we stopped cutting our cloth accordingly? And before you all start chucking stuff at your telly, going, what are you even talking about, Michelle, you idiot? Don't you realise that things are going up astronomically? Yes, I do. I'm just talking about what are the different steps and all the different... Because the way that this is going to be helped, you're going to have to have a multitude of different things coming together to try and have an overall reduction and help people. And is one of those things... Is, has John got a point? Is one of those things about people 
uh, relearning to cut their cloth accordingly because society has changed, Peter. We grew up, my family grew up, without a lot of money at all. Um, I've got a, a big family. Uh, my bed was in a bay window and I always had ice on the bay window when I woke up in the morning, my neck curtains were stuck to the things. We rarely had heating on, we literally walked around, we got our nose and winter layers on. We, my mum baked everything from scratch, she used to have a cobbler's block and used to put our shoes on it and fix them. She used to take my dad's collars off, turn them over and re-stitch them all back on. You know, as a society, we don't necessarily live like that anymore, do we? Well, John's ideas are fairly sensible ones, but, but not every family and not every household has a flexibility to do that. Some have already cut their cloth right down to the bone. You know, if, if you're a, maybe a, a married couple with children and you're shop workers and you're on uh, the national minimum wage, it's not a real living wage, for example, I don't think you've got room to cut much further on a discretionary basis. And really, you're forced into doing things like using public transport less, going around the country less, and sadly, that old adage, uh, spending less on heating and eating. But Michelle, I, I recognise very much the picture that you've portrayed because that was very much my childhood too. And it's for that reason that I wouldn't want to go back there and I wouldn't wish it on anyone else. I mean, it was grim and there's very little to say about it other than living like that is really grim. And you can say, well, you know, we were hard up but happy. But actually, for a lot of people, living in such cold conditions and um, working so hard just to survive is actually a really miserable way to live. And I wouldn't glorify it, and I wouldn't say that there's anything good about wanting to go back to a time like that. And Alex, um, let me talk to you about what companies themselves can do. Because uh, We talked a lot about brand and PR sure. and reacting to situations. We just spent a lot of time talking about them reacting to Facebook and Ukraine and all the rest of it. There's a, it is going to be a crisis for many people, these uh, cost increases, because when you talk about petrol, for example, this isn't just going to affect people putting petrol in their own car to get to work or whatever. Yeah. This is going to cost, this is going to impact the whole food production, the whole supply chain, all sure. the rest of it. Do you think, my question to you is, do you think that brands should be responding to some of this by coming out and saying, do you know what, we will take a hit on our profit margins to be in this together with you so not, not coming at it from your side and windfall taxing these, but actually the brands themselves going, look, we understand these are unprecedented times. We're going to reduce our profit margins to whatever. I'm sure that some companies will be looking at that, but what they'll also be looking at is the opportunities that emerges from crisis, <laughs> crisis like this. So in energy, it, the flexibility that's coming about because of the crisis in energy provision is unprecedented. The Americans have had sanctions on Venezuela for much of my political life, and they've been at odds with the Iranians for my entire life. But it seems that, you know, you suddenly, if you are your enemy's enemy, or at least some, somebody else who's willing to provide if you've turned off the Russian taps, those countries, if they come back into the international economic system and start pumping oil again, they're going to need businesses to help them. They're going to need companies to go and help them run systems that, that weren't running in the same way uh, that they might have done in a free market economy. Equally, other countries can have to produce more food. You know, in, the, in, a, in, a, in a situation where the market fails to provide something, when suddenly you get a sudden uh, shock in price because two big providers have been withdrawn from that system, it creates, in blunt terms, an opportunity for other providers to step in and up their game and do more. And that opportunity is something that is devoutly to be wished because we want other people to make more food. And one final point, 
We talk about this rightly in our country and talk about the needs of the worst off, and government is right to look at that. But we are a comparatively wealthy country. There are developing countries in the world. This is going to hit a lot harder than us. Yeah, I agree. And actually, when we're talking about um, costs and sale prices, for example, um, I don't know if I can get this graphic on the screen, so if I can't, then I'll apologise. I'll talk you through it anyway. But um, I've got a graphic here sourced by the RSC. Oh, there you go. Um, but if you can read all that, then you've got better eyesight than me, even with my glasses on, I can tell you. Anyway, this is um, sourced by RSC, prepared by Jamie Jenkins, at StatsJamie on Twitter. And if you're working on a cost, average cost of uh, unleaded price per litre of £1.59.57, uh, over half of that, over 53% of that, is basically what was paid at the pump goes to the UK government in tax. That's a combination of the 20% VAT and the duty. Now, in Ireland, as an example, um, the government there have reduced what they are taking on, um, you know, the duty there. So maybe the government should be looking at that. Should they be temporarily uh, reducing fuel duty? What this also goes on to say that if you've got an average UK uh, price of 159.57, some supermarkets are selling this at a loss of about 0.7p loss because obviously they're seeing petrol as a loss leader to get you into their supermarket, ideally to then go off and spend uh, your shopping. But yeah, green levies, we certainly could pause that. Uh, I wanted to show you a quick video, by the way. I don't know if I've got time, because I've only got a few seconds. Let me show you this. Very quickly. That's not my video, that's me. There you go. Look, this is how bad things are getting now. This is a petrol station in Tyne and Weir, a co-op station. Some random guy has gone up there with his wheelie bin, shoved <laughs> 143 quid's worth of fuel in there, wheeled it off again, and then the cheeky so-and-so has gone back later on in the following night, done the same again. I mean, incredibly goodness dangerous. me. This when people are dangerous. robbing petrol in wheelie bins, I mean, we've got to press pause. That's all I've got time for tonight. Have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Thank you to my wonderful panel. Thank you for your company at home. I'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>